Where in the world can you find a little optimism for a change? Peter Balakian reports that the people in Armenia are feeling good about a recent overhaul of their ruling party. It's certainly a hopeful time, a moment in which at least one can feel or look on and see some of the processes of democracy working, and that's always exciting. And it's a bargain to visit, with a lively capital city celebrating its 2,800th anniversary. Well, Yerevan is such a beautiful city. It's a great surprise to any outsider who's never been there. Coming up, we'll also learn about the remarkable history Paul Kilday puts together in his book Chopin's Piano. The composer who made the piano sing with emotional depth had to overcome a lot the winter he went to Mallorca to work. Chopin is composing on this local piano, which causes him more vexation than pleasure. Searching for Chopin's piano and feeling the optimism in Armenia. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. It's quite a story to tell if Paul Kilday's book ever gets made into a movie. The characters in Chopin's piano would include the revolutionary but frail composer, his bohemian lover, entrepreneurial piano makers, and even a plucky Polish harpsichordist outrunning Nazi looters in France. It's also a topic dear to my heart since I started out of college as a piano teacher. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Stay with us as we explore the search for Chopin's piano from Poland to Paris, Majorca, and England a little later in the hour ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Let's start with some good news out of a part of the world that sees more than its share of conflict. One of the oldest societies in the world has just replaced its old guard Soviet-style government, thanks in large part to the democratic aspirations of its tech-savvy millennials, Armenia has just undergone its own velvet revolution, all without firing a single bullet. As you can tell by his family name, Peter Balakian's ancestors came to America from Armenia. Today, Peter's a professor of humanities at Colgate University in upstate New York. A few years ago, he won a Pulitzer Prize for the poems he wrote after excavating the bones of victims of the 1915 Armenian Genocide. Recently, Peter wrote for the New York Times about a new sense of optimism he found on his latest trip to Armenia. Peter, this is exciting to hear about this new energy in Armenia. Well, it seems very hopeful. You know, you never like to um, predict the future, and political and social change are never simple and can undergo various chapters in evolution, but it's certainly a hopeful time and a moment in which at least one can feel or look on and see some of the processes of democracy working, and that's always exciting. That was the spring of of 2018, and uh, you were there just after that. Uh, Yes, I I mean, I was there in in early June, just after this uh, Mm -hmm. political transition Uh, had taken place. And uh, the last time I had been there was 2016, so just about two years before. And, you know, there really was a feeling of excitement and optimism among people. People everywhere that you spoke with were just registering a sense of excitement. And, you know, one wants to be cautious because, again, change is slow and complex. Mm -hmm. But the emotional excitement of having Mm -hmm. this political change happened was really discernible everywhere, and it was a great time to be there, and I think it still is a great time to be there. In your New York Times article, you mentioned how, well, you credited the younger generation uh, with replacing their old style, what they considered corrupt national leadership. How is the younger generation connected to the rest of the world? How was it the younger generation that brought this change? I do want to be, you know, nuanced in noting that 
wasn't only the younger generation, but they have been noted as being primary forces and sources of agency in this uh, process. They did a lot of their organizing and their gathering and their, their reaching each other through the internet and through social media. This, uh, you know, enabled them to accelerate perhaps a process that could have taken longer in another era. I'm not totally optimistic about the realities of the digital age, the darknesses of it, and the damage that it does is also there, but there are also these very positive kinds of dimensions to digital life. For me, this is a travel show, and I've always been just curious about Armenia. I visited Armenian sites in Turkey, and a lot of people don't even consider going to Armenia, but I've talked to people who have been to Armenia, and they just say, well, why not? It's great. It's welcoming. There's there's no reason not to go to Armenia. Armenia borders Turkey on the northeast. Is that right? Uh, well, on, on Armenia's southwest. You're right. Turkey's northeast, Armenia's southwest, and then Georgia on its sort of northwest and then Azerbaijan on its east, and Iran on its south. That's its neighborhood. Let's just talk about nitty-gritty stuff here, Peter, for travelers. Do you need a visa? Is it safe? Are there health precautions? Can you manage speaking English? Uh, Do you just uh, change money like you would anywhere else? Uh, How does that all work? Yeah, I'm happy to say pretty affirmative to all your questions. It's really safe. Do you need a visa? Modern. No visa needed, money exchange, simple in any way you would do it anywhere else okay, in the so world. Okay, so you got your American passport, you don't need any shots, you just buy a plane ticket, you fly in, you change money at an ATM, uh, people in tourism are likely to speak English, you can use your credit cards just like you can in Germany. Uh, is that all true? Yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, it's quite user-friendly. I say that because just over the border, you can't use your credit cards in Iran, for example. You have to bring in cash. But Armenia, it would be like traveling, probably like traveling in Poland or or Hungary to a certain degree. Anywhere, like France or the UK, for that matter. How does the cost uh, relate to traveling in Greece or or Italy? Uh, Yeah, I I want to underscore that the bargain is so large that one feels one should be paying more for a six-course dinner that's really quite splendid. That might be one quarter of the price mm-hmm. of, a, of an American night out at a mid-range restaurant. So the dollar goes a long way. The values are superb. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a vacation, you know, you really can um, have a great value with in that economic sense. Peter Balakian is an Armenian-American poet, writer, and professor of humanities at Colgate University. He's updating us on the optimism he found when visiting Armenia a few months ago, both in the capital city, Yerevan, and in the countryside. In the notes for this week's show, you'll find links to his poetry about Armenia and to his recent New York Times article describing what he found there. It's at ricksteves.com radio. Okay, be my tour guide here, Peter. Let's say I've got 10 days for Armenia. I'm going to fly into the capital city of Yerevan. Uh, how much time would I spend in Yerevan, and uh, what would I see in the countryside? Just really quickly. Well, Yerevan is such a beautiful city. It's a great surprise to any outsider who's never been there. Lush, leafy green, tree-lined streets, a little feeling of Paris, I say, in terms of cafes and nightlife, microbreweries, art galleries, 
uh, boutiques uh, with crafts and folk art, and then these gorgeous streets, a huge, beautiful square called Republic Square. It's mammoth in its proportions because it was built during the Soviet era, and the buildings on Republic Square are made of this rosy pink tufa stone. There at night in the warm weather months, which is about half the year, the fountains pour at night, they're lit up, music plays till about midnight, mm. and people mill around, dance, hang out, they're at cafes. So just the, the hub of Yerevan is enough to keep anybody there for a bit. In Yerevan, culturally very rich, many museums, history museums, the State History Museum, for example, the Erbuni Museum, which is up on the hillside in the city in which the ruins of the origins of Yerevan are still preserved during the Urartrian period, which preceded the official evolution of Armenia. What's the name of that, Urartrian? Urartrian, U-R-A-R-T-R-I-A-N. That's a reminder that the city is celebrating its 2,800th anniversary. It's got a deep and long history, as well as some fascinating Soviet overlays. When I go to Sofia in Bulgaria, the, the charms of the city to me is, is the sort of bombastic Soviet period architecture and street plan and so on. Is there a sense of the time that Armenia was part of the Soviet Union when you wander around the city? Well, I think the period that most embodies that is, is what I was noting in the Republic Square, where you have this mammoth, monumental-sized, circular square. You know, if, if right. you put those two metaphors together, it's a big circular square. You then find a Russian-Armenian past in quaint and beautiful 19th century stone buildings, beautiful galleries and courtyards. But I do want to emphasize the museums are extraordinary. Right. And the Armenian Genocide Memorial and Museum is one of the highlights, I think, for anybody visiting Yerevan. Yerevan restaurants, Yerevan nightlife, Yerevan museums uh, really, really occupy a lot of many good days for a tourist. But I do, I do want to follow up your question about getting out of the city because if you're there for 10 days, you have a feast awaiting you in the highlands and the mountains. You know, Armenia is a dramatically beautiful country with highlands and moors that evoke in many ways Scotland and mountains that are very much like the Alps, dense, forested, high mountains in the very far north. Embedded in many of these highlands and mountains are some of the most astonishing early Christian churches and monasteries in the world. Armenians were extraordinary architects and builders, and these churches and monasteries, I'll name a few of them, Geghart, Noravank, Hargatsin, Datev, Hakpat, Odzun. I can keep rattling off the names, but I don't want to, you know, conf <laughs> I don't want to bombard our listeners. But any of those names will bring you to extraordinarily dramatic monasteries and churches built out of cliffs and mountainsides in dramatic 
rocky canyon-like terrains, and there's something fantastical and magical about them, and they're intermittent scale, and you can get a very intense kind of cosmic vibe uh, spending afternoons in these environments. So, Peter, you sound almost like a, you're, you're working for the Armenian Tourist Board. It sounds incredible. Ar- no, I'm just <laughs> working for my own literary imagination. <laughs> so, Yerevan sounds like the dominant city, but then, basically, would you recommend just renting a car and then you could drive around and, and find all these wonders in, the, in within an hour or two by car from the capital city? I think you you could do that. An hour around the capital city, you will find the holy seat of the Armenian church, Etchmiadzin, a stunningly beautiful clerical and monastic city. You will find a Greek, uh, I should say, Greek-style Hellenic temple called Garni. You'll find the great arch to the poet Yereshe Charents. So an hour out of the city, you have a lot of jewels, including the, the monastery and church of Gekhart. But to go into the mountains north and south, you're probably going to need two or three hours. And, and I think it would be great to, to hire a guide here. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be, and it'd be very inexpensive and very worthwhile. Just ahead, there's more with Peter Balakian on what you'll find in Armenia as the small country tucked between Turkey, Georgia, and Azerbaijan enters a new phase of its democracy. And later, we'll hear how admirers of the composer Frédéric Chopin have located the pianos he used that changed how the world thinks of music. We're at 877-333-7425 on Travel with Rick Steves. Peter Balakian's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. He's telling us about the sights and experiences you can find in a newly optimistic Armenia, now that it's removed its old-style oligarchs from running the government, and democracy is taking hold. Armenia's history makes it one of the oldest societies on Earth, and now its younger generation, born after the Soviet era, is ready to show off its treasures and cuisine. We have a link to Peter's New York Times article about Armenia with the notes for this week's show, in our website. It's at ricksteves.com slash radio. I would imagine there's really no crowd problems for a tourist like you'd find in Paris or, or Salzburg or Vienna. There's probably no crowds at all. It is nice to be in Yerevan, which has a healthy enough buzz with pedestrians and traffic. I should say traffic with, you know, cars. But there's no traffic. There are no jams. There's no backlogs. Right. Armenia is a good value in the sense of quality of experience. You can really maximize your days and your time there. And I, I also want to note that the weather is stunningly beautiful. The Caucasus sun is beautiful. It's dry, clean. Those blue skies are of a kind of magical, almost rich color and it's really quite a spectacular climate, although, I, again, I want to note, I haven't gone in late July or August, and I imagine it's pretty darn hot then. I think a traveler would be best going in May and June, September and October, first half of July, maybe two. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Peter Balakian about Armenia. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Anne's on the phone from Olwine in Iowa. And have you been to Armenia? Yes, we actually traveled there in May. We went with another couple who, the husband of the couple is an Armenian-American, and he is very deeply involved in the whole Armenian culture and whole Armenian history. And so he really wanted to be there when they were having their 100th anniversary of their revolution. 
And so we were actually there during that time where they were doing that celebration. Interestingly, it was also 10 days after they had the election, the quote-unquote Velvet Revolution, where the government totally switched over from one, one ruler to another. So it was, it was an interesting time to be there. And what was the feeling like in the streets? I mean, it must have been a little bit both nervous and euphoric. By the time we were there, it was more euphoric because mm-hmm. the elections had taken place at the time. And so people were really excited about the new leader and the things that hopefully that he will bring to the country. People were very realistic, though, saying there will be definitely a lot of hurdles mm-hmm. um, because there's a lot of embedded money and power um, in the past. And so they definitely, you know, had some hurdles to go through, but definitely very optimistic. Yeah, yeah. my, my friends mm-hmm. in that corner of the world tell me the, the music may change, but the musicians remain the same. <laughs> and that's a, mm-hmm. sort of a, mm-hmm. uh, it's hard mm-hmm. to make real change, and uh, we can only hope for the best for Armenia. Hope for the you best, know, exactly. If, right. uh, if you were listening to Peter, he, he was uh, very, very uh, positive about Armenia as a destination for tourism. And you rarely meet somebody who's going to, quote, Europe that thinks about Armenia. What's your take on Armenia just as a, a casual tourist destination for people heading to Europe? Well, sure. As a, as a person, and I felt kind of like a tag-along with these friends of ours that we went with, but they were very most welcoming. Um, everything was pretty much what Peter was talking about. Um, the capital, Yerevan, we based out of there, and so had you know many meals and did some of the tour sites around the city, exactly what Peter was talking about. A couple others interesting ones. There's a folk art museum that has some of the past silverwork and woodwork of um, the the people of the country. A lot of that, because of the Soviet um, time period, had been destroyed. Mm-hmm. So there were some pieces that were able to be kept, and they're trying to recreate some of that mm. um, cultural heritage. So that, to me, was fascinating. Hey, let's talk about food for a minute, because everybody likes to eat while they're traveling. Peter, when you're thinking of Armenia, what would you recommend in regards to the cuisine? Well, I think there's marvelous cuisine all over the country, in the villages, in the towns, and in the big city. I noted some spectacular evenings dining in Yerevan in my travel piece, and I would just reiterate some of the great local feasts. For example, the Lake Sevan trout, which is wood-grilled whole and then cut into big hunks, served with grilled vegetables and potatoes. They're all done on a wood grill. That's a classic real Armenian Caucasus meal. Another great part of Armenian cuisine today is the fusion of Middle Eastern Armenian cuisine, which is coming from the middle uh, Iraqi and Syrian refugees, Armenians who have resettled in Armenia, and they're bringing some of their great ranges of flavor and spicing. So you're getting some really spectacular lamajuns and particular kinds of kebabs and dips, like, you know, the muhammara, the spicy hot walnut dip that's very popular in Syria and, and Iraq. Okay, let's hear what Anne would eat. Anne, does that uh, stoke your appetite there? What, what was your memories of great meals in Armenia? Well, definitely Lake Saban, you know, when we went there for the trout. That was wonderful. They had a tabbouleh that is definitely more of an Armenian version of the dish, which I enjoyed much more than the Syrian um, version of it. Hmm. And then, you know, if, if you're not that venturesome in your cuisine, especially in Yerevan, there are a variety of different nationalities of restaurants and food types. So people can be, you know, satisfied in any way, either local cuisine or if they want to go international, there's definitely that available too. That's important to note, yeah, that you can get a good Italian dinner, you can get uh, 
Well, you know, you can get burgers and salads. Yes, of course. It's not just Armenian cuisine. It's a pretty cosmopolitan place. But Anne, if you're sticking with Armenian, what took some getting used to? Probably the language, because uh, the alphabet is totally different. It's not a language that is very transferable, let's Hmm. put it that way. And so that was hard. Do they have Cyrillic alphabet, or what alphabet do they have? The Armenian language is a solo on the language trees of the world, along with, say, Hungarian and Finnish. So it doesn't have roots in, Mm. uh, you know, it's not connected, like Romance languages are connected to each other. But the alphabet, while not Cyrillic, literally is a curvilinear orthography that would be unique to anyone coming in for the first time, no doubt. Yeah. But, and you were able to manage with English in the tourist circles? Yeah, definitely. Um, We had a guide that took us to um, some of our areas outside of the city. We went out on several day trips and and an overnight trip, and and Hmm. her English was good. We worked with each other on how to, you know, what the different terminology and different words were. So we helped both Hmm. improve our Armenian and her English. Nice. And and what was your highlight outside of the capital city of Yerevan? Probably Tata, one of the um, churches, monasteries that Peter was talking about. Just getting there, you have to get there on a tram, Uh um, overlooking these huge valleys, Mm. you know, on top of this mountain. It's just amazing just thinking how the people at the time in the 1300s, 1200s, were able to construct this. And thanks so much for your call and your report from Armenia. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Happy travels. Thanks. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Peter Balakian. He's got an article in the New York Times about Armenia coming out of its, what they call the Velvet Revolution. It sounds like a promising time for tourism. I know you've got uh, Armenian heritage, and it must be just uh, really exciting for you to go back to your family's ancestral homeland and uh, see this positive and hopeful development. Uh, Just in general, from your experience in Armenia, when you look at what's happening all around the world these days, what sort of takeaway do you have from your experience? Well, I would add one more exciting kind of perception uh, for me, and that is that Armenia is a blend of extraordinary, ancient, rich culture, architecture, art, monasteries, churches, dramatic, extraordinary landscape, but also a very hip, high-tech culture and educational institutions all over the country. And I want to note a couple, the Children of Armenia Fund and its new Smart Center in the Lori Mountains, Dilijan University, also in the northern region, the American University of Armenia, AUA, which houses the famous Aurora Prize for humanitarian contribution, TUMO, which is a big high-tech smart organization that is smart plan think organization. There's so much creative energy in Armenia for all of the trauma that this small ancient culture has been through. Genocide, Soviet domination, uh, war with neighboring Azerbaijan. There is so much vitality and intellectual cultural vibrancy, and it's very exciting to see it, and it's a sign of of hope and progress and the fusion of the ancient with the contemporary. So it sounds like uh, Armenia is blessed with a little stability, with a sort of an in-action, younger, educated class, and uh, an absence of conflict right now that gives them a window to progress and, and democracy can bloom. We're all watching, and I encourage people to go and participate in the good energy and the great value. It's a great time to go for any tourist and be part of it, feel it, and have an extraordinary vacation and education. 
Peter Balakian, thank you so much for uh, taking us to Armenia and inspiring us to go there ourselves. Happy travels. Thanks. Thanks. You bet. Frédéric Chopin changed how we think about music forever when he composed his stunningly beautiful and nuanced pieces. And he did it on a horrible piano. In his book Chopin's Piano, composer, conductor, and music historian Paul Kilday explores how Chopin, in his late 20s, used the only piano he could get his hands on while wintering on the island of Majorca to compose many of his beloved preludes. These short works, so sublime and so intimate, demonstrated how far the solo piano could take the listener. Kilday's story builds on mysteries, tragedy, international intrigue, even Nazis, as he explores the influence of Chopin's groundbreaking preludes and then traces the fascinating story of that clunky piano long after Chopin died. Paul, welcome. Thank you. Lovely to be here, Rick. What a fascinating book you have written. Now, there's lots of great and interesting and influential composers. What's special about Chopin and his piano that merited a book like this in your mind? Well, I actually started from the end of the book and worked backwards in that I was originally interested in writing about what the fate of uh, a lot of instruments in the Second World War because of the Nazi confiscation and looting of these very, very valuable instruments on a scale equal to uh, the looting of art. And then when I started looking at this topic more closely, I ended up finding this one particular piano, and it's this piano that Chopin had with him in Mallorca in 1838 and 1839, this terrible winter. And on this instrument, he wrote, you know, about 10 of the preludes and a lot of other very, very, very important works. And so I decided instead to take this one piano and trace it through 150 years or so and look at the fate of the instrument and also the fate of the music that was composed on it. So why would the quality of a piano matter to a composer? Isn't he just using the piano as a tool to get the ideas in his beautiful brain down on paper? Yeah, yes and no. Um, it, it depends upon the composer. And in this instance, uh, we know that Chopin wrote all of his works um, as a great improviser at the instrument. Like he'd have ideas on walks, etc., But he'd go home and he'd improvise. And then there's a long process where he turned these elaborate and rather wonderful improvisations into written works, which were then published and the works that we know today. So Mm -hmm. the instrument on which he worked was um, integral to the, the pieces and how they turned out which is why when he was in Mallorca, he was waiting for this beautiful player instrument to come from Paris. But while he was waiting for this, um, he ended up using this instrument made by a local craftsman, Juan Bowser. And this is the instrument that he had for the majority of his time in Mallorca and on which he wrote these uh, fabulous pieces. So your contention is that the preludes may have been composed differently had his playel from Paris arrived in Mallorca. Oh, without doubt. Um, and there are some wonderful examples that you can um, tweak out of the uh, the pieces themselves. Like if you look at number seven, the, which is this beautiful little um, music box waltz, it's almost as though Chopin uh, was determined not to push the instrument um, beyond its capabilities. And there are other instances, like the very famous raindrop prelude, that the middle part of that is almost Chopin scratching away at the particular sonority of this instrument, which would have sounded very unstable on this rather primitive instrument. So yes, they would have, exactly as you say, they would have sounded very differently. It's neat that you bring up number 15, the raindrops prelude, because uh, 
I only learned a couple of these preludes, but Raindrops is one of the most beautiful pieces. And in the middle, you've got that repeating note in the left hand, and I have so much fun bringing all of the personality and quality out of my piano when I play Raindrops. It just seems made for enjoying the tone and kind of made for rubato, and it's just a lovely piece. Would that have been composed on this lousy Mallorca piano? Yes, definitely. This is the one that we actually know the most about because Georges Sand, who was Chopin's lover, wrote about this piano in her own letters and also in her memoir of the time on the island where she writes and says that, you know, Chopin is composing on this local piano which causes him more vexation than pleasure. But she writes about going down into Parma from Valdemossa, which is the lovely monastery in which Chopin and Sand were living throughout this winter, to try and effect the release of the play on the piano. There was a terrible rainstorm, and the trip that should have taken just a few hours ended up taking seven hours. But when she came back, she saw Chopin at the Bowser piano playing a piece that she'd never heard before, and it was the Raindrops Prelude. Mm. And that's where she points out to him that the the repeated note, um, it was exactly replicating the rhythm of the rain hitting the tiles in the in the monastery, which is where the, the piece got its nickname from. But yes, she wrote about this um, in, in some detail. I just love that. When you travel, you visit the homes and the places where great musicians were inspired to write their music. And uh, whether it's on a fjord with Edvard Grieg or wandering through Vienna with Beethoven or, or waking up in Salzburg with Mozart, you're saying that a composer like Chopin would be out in nature, collecting ideas, working this out, and then he'd go home and, like, we would go to a desk to write. He would go to his piano to write, and he was sitting there frustrated because he was dealing with this makeshift temporary piano waiting for the good one to come in. On that piano, he wrote a collection of preludes that really changed music piano history in a lot of ways. Well, they really did. Let's deal with the preludes themselves, which since Bach, you know, who had died almost 100 years before Chopin was in Majorca, no one really was writing preludes. And if they were, they were very primitive things. And here Chopin kind of looked back to Bach, but also looked forward to the works of Szymanowski and Debussy um, in the 20th century. Hmm. So they're very unusual pieces in themselves. And then, as you say, he would have these ideas and these inspirations when he was walking. He was a very internal man. His life was lived very, very much inside his head and then would come and work away at the piano. And then Sand also describes how this um, initial burst of inspiration would then take him days and days, often weeks, where he wrestled to try and get back the original inspiration and have it into shape on paper, you know, in the pieces that we know now. This is so new to me to think that the actual finished product would have been shaped to a certain degree, not by the inspiration of the artist, but by a combination of what the artist or the composer was inspired to write and the personality of the piano he's working on. I know that if I came home and was inspired to write and had a Steinway, it might be a more brilliant piece, and if I had a Bersendorfer, it might be a more slinky or romantic piece. Uh, so we can see that in Majorca, we can see that in Chopin. Is that something that we can learn and, and apply to appreciating music beyond Chopin? It really depends. Uh, for instance, people like uh, Benjamin Britten, uh, another uh, composer I've written very much about, did the same walks that Chopin did, you know, still enjoyed uh, walking along the Shingley Beach in Albrough in Suffolk in, in the UK. But he actually would shape all the works in his head and then would actually not go back to his piano. He would go to his desk and, mm. and the, the shape of the piece was already completely formed in his head and he'd sit down then and write it. 
And it was all just kind of in his head. And there are lovely stories about him um, being in America, actually. And Aaron Copeland um, saw him orchestrate a, a very complex orchestral piece of his while holding a conversation with those around him because it was all just so automatic to him. So it's case by case. But in Chopin's case, the instrument was um, paramount to how the piece turned out. There's more in a minute with Paul Kilday as he takes us on the search for the instrument that transformed music, which he writes about in Chopin's Piano. It's Travel with Rick Steves. We're entering the world of composer Frederick Chopin right now on Travel with Rick Steves with our guest, Paul Kilday. Paul's a conductor and writer from Melbourne, Australia. For many years, he headed arts festivals and performance venues in England, and he's authored several books about composer Benjamin Britten. In Paul's historical narrative, Chopin's Piano in Search of the Instrument that Transformed Music, even the pianos have stories to tell as we learn what the composer had to endure to produce revolutionary music for the Romantic Age. Paul, when we think about music and travel, after all, this is a travel show, I love the way composers are inspired by their heritage, by their environment, by their loves. And uh, when we think about Chopin, it's a big combination of that. When you go to Warsaw, you see a memorial to Chopin the beloved composer of the country, even though he spent most of his career outside of Poland. And it's the willow tree blowing over his head in this big black statue. Have you been there and seen that statue? Yes, indeed, yes. What I've heard is that it's when he was in Paris, he'll never forgot the sound of the wind blowing through the willow trees in his homeland. And he kind of kept oh. a bit of Poland with him. And the interesting thing about Chopin is that not so much in his lifetime, but in the second half of the 19th century, different countries definitely wanted to claim him. So Russia and Poland wanted to claim him. Paris thought it should be able to claim him. Germany thought that uh, it should be able to claim him because yeah. Germany was the custodian, if you like, of, of high art and, and right. the great romantic movement in music. And England also had a... Does Mallorca <laughs> want him? Uh, Mallorca never kind of really knew what to do with him. And not least because, uh, of course... Uh, Georges Sand wrote a memoir of the time, you know, A Winter in Mallorca, of their time there, which excoriates the locals and which was incredibly rude about the people that she encountered and the, and the experiences that they had there. So Mallorca for a long time felt very uh, sensitive. Of course, Mallorca is a big Mediterranean party destination now. How was it uh, in the middle of the 1800s or the early 1800s when, uh, when Chopin went there? He would have taken a boat from uh, Barcelona? That's exactly right. He took a boat from Barcelona and the journey took around 18, 19 hours. It was very primitive. It was a, a walled town. And so the, the walls that you can see there today completely contained the town as it existed. And of course, he stayed there for uh, only a week or so and then moved outside the city of Palma and then later moved up the mountain to Valdemosa, which is this former monastery um, where they took a cell and were originally planning to stay there for a year. And the monastery itself is, is now incredibly popular. It has a big hmm. Chopin museum there. It has all these artifacts and letters and um, copies of manuscripts, etc. So that's rather beautiful. And you can catch a train which didn't exist in Chopin's time, of course, mm -hmm. but this lovely Art Deco train up the hill from Parma to Soler. And it's very, very beautiful. Um, and over these lovely aqueducts and, and through these little tunnels, um, it's actually very, very beautiful. But in Chopin's time, of course, far more primitive. And that's, of course, why there, there wasn't really an industry for concerts and for piano making, etc. So that's why Chopin ends up on this very primitive instrument. Now, Paul, you write about how Chopin went to Majorca for health reasons to leave drizzly Paris, and he got to 
Majorca, hoping for sunshine, and it wasn't as nice as he thought for his health, and he stayed sickly. I would imagine he would have missed the cultural scene in Paris from the early 1800s as the Romantic Age was coming together. What was the Paris like that Chopin left, and would that have been where his uh, creative heart would have been? Oh, I think so. Um, it was Georges Sand's suggestion that they get out of Paris. She was quite a notorious figure and was sick of being this uh, figure of uh, derision and interest um, in the papers and high society. So it was her idea. But he also thought that he wasn't actually getting enough work done. He he lived mostly as a teacher, don't forget. He, he hated giving recitals and didn't take the path which would have been lucrative as well as um, bringing him much fame that Liszt had taken of being a, a recital player earning 10,000 francs per recital. So he thought he could get away and, and have just some concentrated time. And the Paris, of course, that he was leaving behind was one of enormous musical and, and cultural value and significance. And he was not a part of it, but slightly on the periphery, only because of his desire just to perform in small salons and not really play a great role in the romantic music scene in, in Paris at the time. And so he left that more to Liszt, who had come through town, and, and a lot of the other pianists at the time who were um, forging big careers there. And as railways started coming, um, which they did in his time in Paris, and opened up the whole recital network in the mid-19th century, Chopin wasn't playing a part of that and was quite happy to let others do it. But it was definitely a very stimulating time for him. And when he first arrived in Paris... In 1831, he was overwhelmed by the quality and the array of music at the opera, at the orchestra, etc. So he came from Warsaw to Paris. He could have gone to Vienna, and he chose to go to Paris. Did the Parisian music scene and cultural scene, would it have rivaled Vienna at that time or even exceeded it? Yes, I think exceeded it. He did spend a little bit of time in Vienna en route to Paris, uh, but it was very, very different. Uh, it was just kind of slightly more conservative and constrained, and whereas Paris somehow just suited him, a slightly larger city, he found himself very quickly in the, the, the sort of aristocratic milieu of the town and was greatly in desire as a teacher of these aristocratic pupils or their, their children. So it just kind of suited him. Didn't he miss that? I mean, Majorca must have been a way out in the in the boonies culturally, or was it a place where cultural people would go and, and gather? I know in the 1800s, the Isle of Capri uh, was a, a gathering place for the avant-garde. Was there that kind of a cultural sort of edginess about Majorca, or was it just a place no. that he went for health reasons? <laughs> no, absolutely not. And I'm not even sure people really went for health reasons. Uh, it mm -hmm. was just this idea that Sant had come up with. It usually had a better climate at that time of year, which is November, oh, December. Okay. This year, of course, it happened to have a very terrible winter. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Paul Kilday about his book, Chopin's Piano. It talks about the romantic music scene in the early 1800s. It also traces Chopin's piano after Chopin died. I mean, we're, we're a third of the way through the book, Paul, and Chopin's dead, and the book carries on, and suddenly the main character is the piano itself. Where did Chopin's lousy Majorcan piano, the Bowser piano, travel? And uh, how could that be the, the sort of the, what carries the, the whole story for you? The piano remains in Majorca, in, in the cell in which uh, Chopin and Sand lived, until 1911. And in 1911, the rather wonderful Polish harpsichordist, Wanda Landowska, was in Majorca giving concerts. And because she was Polish, because she was a great grand pupil of Chopin, because she felt hugely the nationalist ownership, if you like, of Chopin. She travels up to Valdemosa 
finds the piano there and offers to buy it and the owner refuses to sell it but then two years later um, agrees and so the piano um, is shipped to Landowska's place in Berlin where it's photographed rather beautifully and that's the photograph actually that's on the front cover of the book. There it remains until after the war uh, where Landowska takes a position in Paris and so the piano moves with her to Paris and then in uh, 1926 she buys this rather wonderful uh, little villa in the north of Paris, in Saint-Loup-la-Forêt, and it's there that she starts building up or adding to her collection of musical instruments. Mm. And the instruments are, are really quite well known um, because she uses them to teach, to write, to think about how music should be played, not least of all Chopin. And the piano remains there and, and is very well known as the Chopin piano. And mm. Chopin, of course, was now this world figure. And so once the Nazis come to power in 1933, and then very particularly when they take over Paris in 1940, they start their looting of instruments in Paris and in France. And they make a note that they definitely want to get this uh, Chopin piano as an important relic of great you know, European culture. Hmm. So, Paul, when we're traveling... And when we love music, it's so much fun to stumble onto a site that relates to a composer that that is important to you. I love Chopin, and when I'm in Warsaw, you you can't help but think about Chopin because they milk that as much as they can. I mean, you even go into the park, and you sit down in a park on a bench, and the bench has has a speaker in it, and you push a button, and it'll play Chopin as you're relaxing in the park. I've not found that anywhere else. In your travels, apart from Chopin, just composers in general, what are some fun and, and uh, rewarding moments that you've had that uh, people who are traveling might splice into their itineraries? Well, I've been very privileged in that I've been able to play instruments owned by composers, um, and which aren't so easy to do. And that, to me, always seems a, an enormous privilege that you end up playing mm. on a piano that Chopin had with him mm. in, in England in, in 1848, for instance, or Benjamin Britten's really wonderful grand piano, or one of the harpsichords that van der Landowska owned and which is now in the Library of Congress in Washington. So I've been very lucky in, in that kind of practical level. Um, I'm also very fond of the concert halls and, and recital places and archives that composers in particular have built. You know, you only have to think of Bayreuth as this monument to that great either composer or monster, um, Wagner, or the very, very beautiful concert hall that Benjamin Britten built in mm. um, in Snape in Suffolk in the UK. You can't help but be in there and feel that the spirits of these, mm. these great uh, men and women who have both built them and then performed there over a very long time are with you. So those are the things that I find more interesting just than tracing a particular itinerary that a composer or a performer right. may have followed himself or herself. It is, there is something to be said for um, letting the, the musical experience become even more sensual by being in the same spot or being in architecture that fits the music and so on. Uh, one of my favorites was on the fjord in Norway, looking out from the concert hall to the cabin where Grieg was inspired to write, surrounded by all that fjord beauty, and then the grand piano is right there with a big glass wall, and you see the fjords and you hear the the pianist play the great Grieg concertos. Or we can go to the great opera halls in Vienna and, and Milano and imagine the performances that debuted right there, and you're sitting there enjoying it today. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Paul Kilday. His book is Chopin's Piano. And Paul, it is remarkable to think that on a godforsaken little corner of the uh, Mediterranean. Of course, it's not godforsaken today because everybody loves it. It's a resort. But back then, it sounded like a pretty humble place, the island of Majorca. 
Chopin, he wished he had his better piano there, but on a ratty little local piano, composed a series of preludes that really had an impact on, on romantic music and, and music ever after. Talk a little bit about this accomplishment. He set out to write a prelude in each of the 24 possible keys, C, C-sharp, D, D-sharp, is, is that right? That's exactly right, in the major and minor of each of those keys. Why, for one thing, would you do that? Bach did it with the well-tempered clavier, right? Yeah, and Bach was a great idol of Chopin's, um, and the only score that Chopin had with him in Majorca, we know, was the 48 Preludes and Fugues. Hmm. And testimony from his pupils, Chopin's pupils, suggests that Bach was taught um, all the time in their lessons that Chopin, whenever he was about to give a recital, would play the Bach Preludes and Fugues from memory. So they were all inside his head. And this was a way of making a homage, if you like, to Bach. And no one had done it on any significant scale since Bach. So Chopin was doing something that was looking back in a way that composers weren't yet looking back to Bach. So he was standing very much outside the romantic norms of his generation. And as I said before, um, also looking forward towards the music of Debussy, for instance, and other composers who would also think that a collection of preludes in all the keys was a, a wonderful exercise. Um, but of course, in the 20th century, they were also not just tipping their cap to Bach, but they were tipping their cap by that stage to Chopin. And when we look back at it today, uh, 150 or more years later, it's important for us to try to remember how exciting it must have been for an artist, a composer, to be able to create music like that and then perform it. There was no electricity, there were no records, the, you had to be in a big city to hear an orchestra. It really was piano that brought the joy of music to people in humble communities all over Europe. That's exactly right. And, and what happens, um, and what I trace in the book, is the explosion, both in technology and interest, in um, piano making um, in the second half of the 19th century. And in some senses... Chopin was slightly left behind by these mm. much larger German instruments and that the very kind of personal and intimate music making that he was used to and that he much preferred was overtaken by these great instruments, these large concert halls, fascination in Chopin's music and also the, the explosion in domestic music making at the end of the 19th century. And all of these things wrapped together and overtook the, the very intimate experience that Chopin had as a performer and that people heard um, in Chopin's time when he deigned to play. And this was 1839, and uh, I understand from your book that Pleyel actually commissioned Chopin to write these preludes. It almost seems like it served their marketing needs to be able to have a great composer produce uh, a series of preludes that would help their piano really be an end in itself. That's true, although because these pieces were so ahead of their time, Pleyel uh, didn't realize, of course, that they would come to be so famous and so part of the domestic market that in, in its turn would fuel a great interest in the instruments that uh, Pleyel was manufacturing at that time. So it was a very, very clever marketing stroke that Pleyel, the manufacturer, didn't even quite realize himself. Paul, of the 24 Chopin preludes, the first one is one of the easiest, and it's also one of the most beautiful. How do you like number one? Number one is, of course, uh, an absolute tribute to the first prelude in Bach's um, 48. 
And so it's almost Chopin uh, setting out his stall and just sort of saying, these are a tribute to hmm. um, you know, this great collection that came before me. But Bach would not have had the opportunity to do rubato like you could do in the Romantic Age, isn't that true? That's certainly true. And of course, you know, wasn't writing on a piano, was writing on um, a harpsichord. So you didn't have the, so, vo- the volume, you didn't have the dynamic contrast either. No, no, absolutely. Huh. Um, dynamic contrast is one of the things that Chopin almost goes out of his way to establish in the preludes, partly because they're also fleeting. You know, some of them are only, you know, 40 seconds long, and the longest one is only about four and a half minutes. So he's setting to try and paint from the most enormous palette onto the, the largest possible canvas, even though, you know, sometimes he's only got 40 seconds to do it. These preludes, by their name, they were supposed to just be fun little amuse bushes, but uh, people are putting them all together and playing the whole thing as a collection that belongs together. Is that right? That's right. I mean, it was André Gide who said preludes to what? But that's not how Chopin thought. And Mm. he also didn't think of them as a collection of 24. That started Mm. happening late in the 19th century. He thought of them as just, you know, uh, little collections. So you might do four of them related by key, or you might do, you know, two of them that are related by a particular interval or character. So it's not Chopin who said, we must perform these as 24, but now it would be very rare to hear them performed in any other way. You Mm. you always hear them in the concert hall as a collection of 24. And of course, today we're overwhelmed by an abundance of channels. And back then, they didn't have one channel, they didn't have any channels. It was gather around the parlor, light the candles, and let's listen to the piano player. That's exactly right. And, And of course, Chopin emerged from that particular Parisian culture, the salon culture, where people did expect, you know, wonderful, witty conversations, um, lovely wine. But then also, uh, you know, at some point, a composer like uh, Chopin and and a pianist uh, like Chopin would sit down and play, and and Mm. that would be the reward at the end of the evening. A beautiful uh, man who runs a little guest house in Warsaw recreates those salon evenings with a young pianist playing Chopin. And it's just gathering together, keeping it simple, being in the moment, and focusing on the music. And that actually is the most uh, beautiful idea as well, because we've moved so far away from the intimate settings where mm-hmm. where you feel as though you could you just touch the music. That very, very intimate salon culture is something uh, I enjoy finding myself when I travel. Paul Kilday, you have inspired me to go home and work on my scales so I can play one of those preludes <laughs> in one of the more difficult keys. Thank you very much. Pleasure. You'll find a link to Paul Kilday's book, Chopin's Piano, with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Let's close today's Travel with Rick Steves with an excerpt of Paul playing the actual playel piano that Chopin himself performed on in England in 1848. It's on display with the Cobb Collection of Historical Keyboard Instruments at Hatchlands Park in Surrey. It's about 23 miles southwest of London. With thanks to our friends at the BBC Radio 4's Start the Week broadcast, here's a sample from Paul of Chopin's Prelude Number 13. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We had help this week from the communications office at Colgate University and from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation in Melbourne. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. 
At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.